You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, our subject is the recently published book, The Fragrance of Emptiness, a commentary on the Heart Sutra. We replay an interview recorded two weeks ago with the author, Tibetan teacher Anam Tupton, and then we continue the discussion with a live interview in the studio with the editor of the book, Laura Duggan. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called La Coro Sutro, which is the Heart Sutra in the invented language of Esperanto. That's music of 20th century American composer Lou Harrison, performed by the UC Berkeley Chorus and the American Gamelan Ensemble with additional soloists. This is the first movement, Consonoro Kaj Gloro. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and, per, and, and in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini 
many rivers, books, and tea in Sebastopol. Spit it out there, Stuart. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to be here. <clears throat> this week on the show, our subject is the recently published book, The Fragrance of Emptiness, a commentary on the Heart Sutra. We replay an interview recorded two weeks ago with the author, Tibetan teacher Anam Tupton, and then we continue the discussion with a live interview in the studio with the editor of the book, Laura Duggan. Anam Tupton grew up in Tibet and at an early age began to practice in the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. He is the founder and spiritual advisor of Dharmata Foundation, teaching widely in the U.S. and abroad. He is also the author of various articles and books in both the Tibetan and English language. His books in English also include No Self, No Problem, The Magic of Awareness, and Embracing Each Moment, A Guide to the Awakened Life. The Fragrance of Emptiness, a Commentary on the Heart Sutra, is his latest book. Laura Duggan has been a student and practitioner of Vedanta, Kashmir Shaivism, and currently Tibetan Buddhism for the last 38 years. She actively engages in self-inquiry and meditation on a daily basis and loves to discuss the application of philosophy to daily life. She is currently a volu- uh, the volunteer retreat coordinator for meditation retreats with Anam Tuptam in the Bay Area, and she's the um, author of an Inquiring Life, Weekly Contemplations, and, as we mentioned, the editor of The Fragrance of Emptiness. So, Laura Duggan, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Rob. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. Delighted to have you back. Um, we usually, we've already talked with you about your spiritual background um, on your previous experience. In, in your previous appearance, but that was quite a while ago, and things have changed a little bit. Since we're going to be playing this uh, interview um, with uh, you and the two of us with Anup Tupton talking about his book, um, I thought before we get going with that, in addition to reading the Heart Sutra, because it's a short text, I just wanted to check in with you about um, how did your how did your particular spiritual trajectory take you into Tibetan Buddhism after a long history um, of other Indian subcontinent uh, um, religious forms? Well, that's a good question. I've been asking that myself for a while, (laughs) trying to figure out how I got here. What's a nice Jewish girl from Brooklyn doing with Tibetan Buddhists at this point after the Hindus and everybody else? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, But actually, it was simple because what happened was after I moved to California, I went into a period of um, seeking traditions that would nurture my spiritual path. And one day I went to hear Anam Tupton speak uh, on the recommendation of a friend. And much to my surprise, everything he said sounded like a continuation of what I'd learned from Swami Muktananda, who Hmm. was teaching basically the tantric form of Kashmir Shaivism and non-dual Vedanta. And it was almost like seamless. And it wasn't about finding Tibetan Buddhism. It was about finding a teacher who seemed to offer the same exact teachings that I felt I wanted to continue to study. Hmm. And along with that, wound up coming Tibetan Buddhism. And when I looked deeper, um, the confluence of those two traditions the Indian philosophies in Kashmir and Tibetan Buddhism were not really separate Mm -hmm. around, let's say, the ninth century. And even certainly still geographically adjacent. Adjacent. But they were clearly mingled in, in India and in Kashmir. So it's 
not surprising, but it was new to me to discover mm-hmm. that they were completely synchronous and compatible. Yeah, we, we've had some um, guests on the show that uh, uh, studied and uh, the tantric tradition, um, and some that were uh, devotees of the last uh, Kashmiri Shaivist master, uh, Swami Lakshmanju. And what I find from that and it was a kind of a discovery for me as well that it it, al- it almost seems like this there was this explosion of spiritual creativity in the uh, emergence of the tantric tradition and it lends itself naturally into landing in any sort of religious tradition so it uh permeated the uh indian uh, uh the the vedic uh, traditions but it just as easily permeated the uh buddhist tradition and there's a commonality and a, a suggestion by uh, one scholar that, in fact, these the, the Buddhist Tantra and Indian Tantra were really indistinguishable. Absolutely. And Anam loves to tell a, a funny anecdote. Um, you know, he studied many of the Tantric uh, texts when he was in the monastery in Tibet. And he said in one of them, uh, as they were reading the Tantric texts, and I think it was a text to Avalokiteshvara, who's the Buddha or Bodhisattva of compassion. As they were reading at one point, the word Avalokiteshvara wasn't there, it was Shiva. And what they discovered was that it was actually a Shaivite text, and the Tibetans just adopted it and did a global search and replace, changing Avaloka, uh, Shiva to Avalokiteshvara, and the translator missed one word and left it. But they're very clear that many of the texts actually were also Shaivite texts. Oh, that, that's fascinating. Well, that, that, then that explains your, uh, uh, your uh, journey there. It's a, it's a, uh, well, yeah. but, but it's also interesting. Uh, to me, it's also interesting that you, um, uh, you bridge these traditions that in the West we're used to thinking of as, as completely dis, you know, disparate or separate. And and so, um, you know, as Stuart said, we you know, in the show, we've been we've been getting into more and more um, guests having, you know, who 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 are quite explicit about how these these traditions mingled in a sense um, over the millennia, actually. So um, so I think that's a really interesting it's, it's an interesting new development for me. And I think more generally in the in the in the West, you know, spiritual seekers in the West coming to appreciate that. Well, I was just going to say it also meant that I had to learn a lot. I had to undo a lot of misconceptions about why they were different. Mm. The difference between, let's say, quote-unquote Hinduism and quote-unquote Buddhism, particularly mm-hmm. around the issue of self and no self, right. and discovering that it's a lot of semantics. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that, that's kind of a, that's an interesting point because... Um, uh, I mean, I remember uh, the arguments you and Jim would have in the uh, our bookstore about Atman and uh, self, and and it's um, uh, interesting to see. You know, he's become a Quaker. <laughs> you become a Tibetan <laughs> Buddhist. It's like the uh, the uh, semantics, you know, it's, are, are uh, quite at play there. And and yet, it, it, I, I think you're right. I mean, there's something. There's the teaching. And the texts and what you get from the teaching, and then there's the philosophical debates. And one of the things that I love about uh, the fragrance of emptiness uh, and the way that Anam Tupton unpacks the text of the Heart Sutra is the um, 
I don't know, the ease or the, the uh, simplicity in the sense that he brings it, the accessibility that he brings to it that uh, dispenses with this, this kind of uh, abstract or uh, desiccated philosophical treatment of no self and et cetera, et cetera. He speaks to our experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think the part of the point is that eventually, if you get beyond the words, that's why I said it was all semantics mm-hmm. before, if you actually can touch an experience, and I would say particularly an experience of non-duality, then you can't hold on to sectarianism, and you can't hold on to philosophical differences being the most important thing, because experience trumps that. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah the, it's it's one of the nice things about uh, um, Anup Tripton's book, The Fragrance of Emptiness, is that, to me, is his willingness there there are an awful lot of tibetan books by tibetan teachers in our bookstore and and out out and published and it's it's uncommon to find one that is willing to acknowledge the existence of equally valid teachings both between the different traditions within tibetan buddhism and beyond as well, uh, you know, in the wider world of Buddhism and, and even beyond that. So um, that's one of the strengths, I think, of the fragrance of emptiness for me. Mm-hmm. The first time I've read one of one of Anam Tudjan's books. Yeah. So that was that's a nice thing. Yeah, the and the the Heart Sutra is a short text, and we'll read it in a moment, just to uh, because it, it doesn't take much time, and it's a good framing. But maybe maybe you could locate before we play the interview with Anam Tudjan. Maybe you could locate the. Uh, uh, Heart Sutra for our listeners. You know, what is this text for those who aren't familiar with it? What does it represent? Uh, where does it sit in the Buddhist tradition? Um, okay, I'll do that. Of course, it's done better in the book. But <laughs> um, in Buddhism, there is a basic set of teachings, which, for lack of another term, you could call Hinayana, which is based on um, maybe ethical actions, you know, and discovering the truth of one's own self. And then there's a tradition called Mahayana, the Great Path, which is based on Bodhisattva, the vow to help others. And in the Mahayana tradition, there's um, a collection of texts called the Perfection of Wisdom, or in Sanskrit, Prajnaparamita, which talk about wisdom meaning knowing the truth of everything as emptiness. And those texts come in varying sizes. <laughs> that's, for, but they, that, that's an understatement. 100,000 verse 1, you know, and 8,000 verse 1. And one of the shorter ones is this very short thing called the Heart Sutra, which is basically repeating what's in all the Prajnaparamita Sutras of seeing the emptiness of everything. So it's a text that's used by... Uh, I would say almost every Mahayana Buddhist tradition, that would include Zen folks, for example. They're, it's not a Tibetan text per se. Oh, no. It's, it's a Mahayana it's, it's text. Actually, I was mentioning to you before we started the uh, show here that years ago, our, fr- our mutual friend Jim Wilson uh, did a heart, this is back in the 90s, a Heart Sutra course. Mm-hmm which uh, Stuart and I both took, and um, I was going over the uh, my my notes and uh, the texts from that, and there's a long piece by Hakuin, the uh, Japanese Zen master, that was one of the things we read, 
actually one of the hardest things to get at the time for me, but because uh, he, he he certainly seemed like cranky old man energy uh, in that text as opposed to the presentation in the fragrance of emptiness. But but um, but yeah, it's it's pervasive throughout Mahayana. So does that answer your question? It a does. Bit? Yeah, it just gives a a sense of, uh, and we'll talk more after we uh, uh, play the interview about um, the the meaning of the text. Oh, can Please. I just add yeah. one more thing to historical basis of the Prajnaparamita Sutras? Because it has to do with, we did a lot of corrections to this text, the book, Fragrance of Entrance, before it came out. But one of them was very subtle but very interesting to me, which was um, originally it said in the text something like, you know, there was the Hinayana text, and then later the Mahayana text came out. And then when we went through and edited Anam said, well, actually, later is not how the Mahayana Buddhists feel. It, it was all by the Buddha originally at yeah. the same time. And, and, and using the word later gives a misimpression. But also, um, what I also appreciated is that, is that Anaptuptan authorized changing use of the word Hinayana to Theravada. Because Hinayana is is understood by the Theravadans as a pejorative term. Yes. And that's that was that's another thing that uh, one of these distinction or aligned with the distinction I made earlier about the respect that um the fragrance of emptiness offers to different traditions. Correct, and I stand corrected, but I still don't have a good term to use for it. Theravada is Theravada fine. does not include all the early... Well, okay, sure. What it refers okay, to is sure. the early it's a Indian it's a, Buddhist things. It's a surviving school of that those traditions, Theravada right? is one school of it, but it is not all of the schools. Well, that's true, so, but the, I mean, I would argue that that's more of an historical artifact for the most part. Because a lot of the Sarvastivada and stuff like that, that isn't really... A relevant uh, group of practitioners these days. Correct. It, it depends on whether our context is historical or right. contemporary. You're right. I, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, Stuart, maybe uh, you want to uh, go ahead and read right. this text. So this is the text. I should mention that uh, this text is chanted quite a bit. It's uh, read. It's auspicious to open anything with uh, the the uh, Heart Sutra text, and it's very short. So. We'll read it here, and then we'll get into the discussion with Anand Tupton that we recorded a couple of weeks ago. Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was dwelling in Rajagriha at Vulture Peak Mountain with a great gathering of monks, nuns, and bodhisattvas. At that time, the Blessed One entered the Samadhi that expresses the Dharma called Profound Illumination. At the same time, noble Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva, while engaging in the profound transcendent wisdom, clearly saw the five skandhas to be empty of nature. Then, through the inspiration of the Buddha, Venerable Shariputra said to noble Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva, How should a son or daughter of noble family train who wishes to follow the profound path of transcendent wisdom? Then noble Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva, said to Venerable Shariputra, O Shariputra, a son or daughter of noble family who wishes to follow the profound path of transcendent wisdom should see in this way, see the five skandhas to be empty of nature. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. 
emptiness is no other than form. Form is no other than emptiness. In the same way, feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness are emptiness. Thus, Shariputra, all phenomena are emptiness. They have no characteristics. There is no birth and no cessation. There is no impurity and no purity. There is no decrease and no increase. Therefore, Shariputra, in emptiness there is no form, no feeling, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no appearance, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no phenomena, no quality of sight, and so on, until no quality of thought, and no quality of mind consciousness, no ignorance, no end of ignorance, up to old age and death, no end of old age and death, no suffering, no cause of suffering, no cessation of suffering, and no path, no wisdom, no attainment, and no non-attainment. Therefore, Shariputra, since the bodhisattvas have no attainment, they abide by means of transcendent wisdom. Since there is no obscuration of mind, there is no fear. They transcend falsity and attain complete nirvana, passing beyond the bounds of sorrow. All the Buddhas of the three times, by means of transcendent wisdom, fully and clearly awaken to unsurpassable truth, complete enlightenment. Therefore, the great mantra of transcendent wisdom, the mantra of great insight, the unsurpassed mantra, the mantra that equals the unequaled, the mantra that calms all suffering, should be known as truth, since there is no deception. The mantra of transcendent wisdom is said in this way, Gate, gate, paragate, parasangate, bodhi, svaha. Thus, Shariputra, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva, should train in the profound transcendent wisdom. Then, the Blessed One arose from, uh, from that Samadhi and praised noble Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva, saying, Good, good, thus it is. O son of noble family, thus it is. One should practice the profound transcendent wisdom just as you have taught and all the Tathagatas will rejoice. When the Blessed One had said this, Venerable Shariputra and Noble Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva, that whole assembly and the whole world with its gods, humans, asuras, and Gandharvas rejoiced and praised the words of the Blessed One. Thank you, Stuart. So um, I just want to point out, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Laura, that um, this particular translation was, in fact, um, done by Anub Tupton. Is, is, that, is that correct? I don't know the origin of it. It's certainly um, some words were changed. I don't know what the source of the English one was. There are mm -hmm. a number of versions that are similar to this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, my understanding is yes, but I can't guarantee it. Okay, got it. All right. So now we will play the uh, uh, interview that we did, and that will take us to the hour. So thank you for joining us on the Mystical Positivist. We're so grateful to have you. 
Oh, it's my pleasure, along with my wonderful friend, Laura Dugan. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> All right. Well, of course, we want to talk about your book, The Fragrance of Emptiness, a commentary on the Heart Sutra. And um, I'll just get started by saying I was um, delighted to see how approachable this um, commentary is for, West, for Western people, I think, because it seems to me that um, the Heart Sutra is not, necessi not necessarily the easiest mm -hmm. of the uh, sutras to um, grasp, um, deliberately so, of course. Um, and so your book has um, not just a, a, uh, a, a very clear presentation, but also your book is um, talks about the different views of the Heart Sutra. And that's a big virtue these days, to recognize and celebrate how different views can be equally valid. So I want to thank you for that for that aspect of the book. Oh, oh you're welcome. Uh, yeah, the Heart Sutra is a reward, uh, extremely sacred and uh, Pretty much all Buddhist traditions, especially in Mahayana, pretty much uh, all the Mahayana Buddhist uh, chant, mm -hmm. and they even sometimes chisel Karahatra Sutra into rocks uh, as a, a spiritual practice. Uh, and uh, there were a lot of uh, commentaries on the Hatra Sutra in the past, uh, at the same time. Uh, I also feel that we need to write uh, more contemporary uh, commentary on the Heart Sutra with all these uh, ideas. Uh, this commentary was uh, born with the uh, uh, extraordinary help of my friend Laura, who is uh, sitting uh, nearby me right now. Uh, Heart Sutra is a very interesting. It's a little bit enigmatic to me, mm -hmm. very mysterious, uh, but somehow people loved it, and I still don't understand why people <laughs> loved Heart Sutra. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wrote it, come into Heart Sutra. I feel I understand the Heart Sutra, but I don't understand why people love it so much for centuries, centuries, because there's nothing about Heart Sutra that you. <laughs> like in the beginning, you know, until you study whatever many years and to realize that the sutra is actually speaking not something totally nonsense but uh, mm -hmm. quite profound. Yeah. And yet everybody chant it in the Tibetan culture, people chant heart to sutra mm -hmm. for wedding blessings, ah. for funeral ceremony, for not just transcendent purpose, but to remove obstacles for their business. Uh, oh, wow. And of course, uh, the yogis and nuns, monks uh, use the Heart Sutra as uh, like their sacred uh, scripture and uh, moral guideline, as well as the base of their deep contemplation into the, the true nature of existence. Uh, it is a, a sutra that is very loved for different uh, purpose. Mm. I didn't realize the extent, the range of different purposes that you've just described. That's that's really interesting. Mm. Well, one one aspect that was striking about the commentary was the gentle touch. 
that you shared all different positions and as many people as there are there's different interpretations of what the sutra means and yet you were willing to share all of that and one question that comes up for us is the 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 heart sutra seems to point to the non-conceptual and yet uh, there are many words written about the Heart Sutra and I'm, I'm interested to understand how you see the use of uh, conceptual tools to give us uh, an opportunity to experience the non-conceptual. Right, uh, there are different points of view on the Heart Sutra as you saw, not just among uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, versus Zen Buddhist, but even among Tibetan Buddhist masters, they uh, didn't always come up with the same, at least intellectual understanding of the Heart Sutra, and it is a, a main topic, which is the Shunyata, or the Great Emptiness, uh, and sometimes uh, they are uh, interpretations of the Heart Sutra are actually a little bit uh, in uh, almost the uh, opposite or almost antagonistic position from each other. Mm -hmm. From outside, they may not be two. Perhaps uh, if they sit together, have tea, they may all agree with each other. <laughs> <laughs> but if they don't come together with their tea, when they were sitting in their monastery, they write these commentaries and they were literally attacking each other, debunking the other's theory out of, of course, uh, great reverence. Uh, uh, as you know, this has been kind of scholarly tradition in both ancient India and Tibet uh, that scholars write uh, uh, books to refute somebody else's book. Uh, 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 therefore, we kind of have to know that uh, uh, there are different uh, interpretations, scholarly commentaries on the Heart Sutra, and they all are valuable. And so we have to celebrate uh, all the intellectual diversity and uh, to really respect them, not to become very touched to one way of interpreting the Heart Sutra. So, but the, as you said, yes, uh, ultimately, the Heart Sutra is not really a, a philosophical text. It's a very profound and extremely dense sutra uh, that uh, contains the the meaning of the the Parajana Paramita Sutras, which has uh, something like 100,000 verses. <laughs> It expressed, but the, which is the emptiness. Emptiness is totally non-conceptual. Emptiness is not a concept. It is a uh, this profound experience of awakening to the nature of reality and being free from the the delusion of a duality in a very authentic way. So emptiness is not really a theory or a concept. It is a living experience of the truth not from the thinking mind, but from this uh, awakened state of consciousness. Uh, and yet, uh, uh, the Buddhist scholars have been uh, offering this very 
challenging as well as extremely intellectual conceptual commentaries on the heart research uh, but I feel that, that the goal of all this uh, uh, intellectual game <laughs> this kind of game of sport intellectual game of sport is really eventually not lead us into this bottomless uh, sea of uh, uh, intellectualization conceptualization but uh, to take us to for another level of uh, understanding which is to to kind of eventually we say oh, all you know all this intellectual interpretation no longer work and I'm going to go beyond it and then there's maybe a moment where we can really experience uh, the the emptiness mm-hmm. or the nature of reality in a very authentic way mm-hmm. uh, from heart not from the mind mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it almost sounds like a koan it's like a koan yes, practice mm-hmm. perhaps studying mm-hmm. our sutra commentary is the Tibetan version of a koan practice uh, yeah absolutely take you beyond the mind well the one sense I, I had in the one of the chapters where you spoke about the Jonang tradition mm-hmm. and that there are interpretations of emptiness that uh, suggest that emptiness is not empty of self-nature but empty of all other uh, conditions and the Galug, I believe, are sort of the opposite extreme that uh, emptiness is empty of even its own (laughs) self-nature and that tension between eternalism and nihilism is not so much a problem in your book as much as a tool to keep you not going too far this way and not too far that way. Yeah, and balances. I, yeah, I yeah. think balances. I, I found that very uh, unique, and uh, I, I appreciated that in the book because I don't see that uh, that balance uh, articulated so well. I'm, I'm interested to you know to know how you how you view that or how how you came to that. Yeah, I found that uh, as maybe a tendency of the human minds, uh, we uh, hold on to something and then our mind uh, tend to become kind of almost touched to that uh, topic or object mm-hmm. and then it doesn't see the vastness of uh, anything uh, like regarding the emptiness. Uh, you see emptiness is uh, quite a uh, based on the negation, just word is based on the negation and there are kind of danger uh, where the mind get really attached to the the negation and become almost nihilistic mm-hmm. and then to counter that we kind of need uh, another way to basically take our mind away from falling into nihilism and, and what we use as a, a uh, object of the attention is the notion of a Buddha nature, Tatanga Dangarba, Buddha nature. It sounds uh, some kind of eternity, but it's not really eternity. Uh, it's same as uh, uh, emptiness, and yet uh, the whole the Buddha nature, the concepts of Buddha nature, has this kind of uh, flavor that is not based on negation. And, and therefore, maybe some of these masters in the past talked about that emptiness is not empty of not emptiness is not empty of self because otherwise they saw our mind just can go into really nihilistic place by getting too much touch to the the negation. The uh, emptiness is negation. Mm-hmm. Maybe 
that's why they come up with different interpretations of emptiness to to balance between these extremes and to make sure that our mind is uh, on the right track. <laughs> well, I, I was, um, you know, you have a story about uh, speaking to a, uh, a Catholic monk right. uh, <laughs> in the book, and um, and it's about this topic of negation. Mm -hmm. um, and it was interesting to me because um, I happen to know that, that actually in in that tradition, in that Christian Catholic tradition, there was a famous guy 1,500 years ago named Dionysus the Areopagite who wrote this very famous text um, where he uses negation to um, take away all the ideas that our minds project onto the idea of God so that we can actually remove all those mistaken ideas mm -hmm. about God mm -hmm. and I was and I was as I read your commentary and description of negation it seemed to me that that was obviously what you're going going for with regard to emptiness mm -hmm. you know the Christian one with, with regard to God but it's the same it's the same basic movement and I'm surprised that the Catholic monk didn't know about this <laughs> this guy uh, Dionysus uh -huh. or didn't even bring that up but it seems like an obvious parallel there between the two traditions at least in, at that level mm -hmm. yeah there are a lot of uh, perhaps similarity between all this uh, contemplative tradition in terms of using mm -hmm. uh, negation as a, a method. Uh, right. And negation plays a very important role in the uh, spiritual path, especially if one is alone for authentic awakening. And it's a totally different story if uh, somebody is not looking for a spiritual awakening, mm -hmm. then you don't need the negation. Still right. can be religious and be kind of happy. <laughs> But if somebody really wants to wake up, whatever that means, then uh, maybe negation is uh, almost uh, indispensable part of it, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, the, the problem in this uh, uh, human mind is that uh, our mind has a tendency to really to just uh, hold on to grasp uh, and manufacture. Mm. You, you see that tendency continues to play as a very deep-seated human habit, even in spiritual realm, mm -hmm. uh, many times, <coughs> not often, uh, spiritual people, when they enter the spiritual path and practice uh, uh, the Dharma or, or in whatever tradition that they belong to, they might be very good or as a tendency to kind of hold on to and to accumulate this and cultivate that and cultivate that thought, that idea, cultivate compassion, love and kindness, which is good. But then sometimes they often neglect or they kind of bypass uh, this uh, practice which is negation. And without bringing the negation, I think it would be very hard for us to be truly be awakened because uh, how can we be truly awakened if we are still lost in our concepts, ideas about uh, life and nature reality? Those uh, concepts, uh, most of them are based on the kind of fundamental delusion about uh, life and nature reality. And they have to be 
removed from our consciousness and if we were always focusing on the just cultivating this and that, acquiring, you know, lots of spiritual practices, it's all about cultivating, acquiring that knowledge, that wisdom, cultivating love, compassion, which is good. But in doing so, there could be imbalance where we totally bypass most important part of spiritual practice, which is to to be awakened from our delusions. (laughs) And to be awakened concept so by focusing on the accumulating cultivate we could be saints but we will be like deluded a saint <laughs> which we don't want to be want to be awakened to saints and therefore I feel this hard to stress very important powerful practice I use this all the time Mm-hmm. in my daily life whenever I feel I need some help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, um, there's some surprises in this commentary for me. <clears throat> I, I read the Heart Sutra before and studied it, but one element of description that um, I'm, I still wrestle with is that I see there's a tendency in my mind when I read about emptiness to um, you know, want to see the world as illusion mm-hmm. and emptiness as real, but you're very clear that emptiness is no more real than the form or the feeling or the perceptions and the uh, you know the uh, the aggregates that uh, compose our reality. That all reality partakes of both, and they're not really separable, and that's harder to. Uh, in a way, that's harder for the mind to get a hold of, yeah, <laughs> because we all want it all one way or all the other. But, yeah. uh, and so I found that that's a very juicy, uh, very uh, rich way of uh, communicating this teaching. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm glad that you brought to that point. That might be one really important uh, concern in dealing with the emptiness, which is uh, to point out uh, again our uh, mind's tendency to turn almost uh, anything into something, including <laughs> emptiness. <laughs> even, even nothing. Even nothing into something. Well, really nothing something. that you can, <laughs> can get attached to it and you can, you know, get lost in the nothingness. Uh, that's just the uh, human mind's tendency. It's uh, really hard for human mind to just uh, let it then and to enter the state of uh, no words, no concepts, and be in union with the nature of reality, which maybe goes beyond eventually all uh, verbal illumination. Uh, as you point out, is true that uh, sometimes uh, even in the history people turned emptiness into some kind of almost uh, uh, entity like God-like entity this uh, supreme being who has no eye, no nose but really powerful supreme (laughs) being um, who is most powerful in the universe (laughs) and he's somewhere but he's nowhere he has no ear, no nose, no tongue (laughs) But he's really powerful, it's like some kind of entity, almost like some sort of a deity. 
uh, where the emptiness is not even really thin, and therefore we kind of have to tell people, don't make emptiness into some kind of the separate entity that is a celestial, mighty, holy, but totally separate from uh, everything, the world, uh, the life, uh, or the table, the cup, or the ordinary things like tweezers <laughs> and spoons, uh, and whereas the uh, emptiness is actually nature all of them. It's not separate from any of them. That's why the most famous uh, line in the Heart Sutra is uh, emptiness is a form. <laughs> Remember form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Until we contemplate on the form is emptiness, we would never get the full picture of emptiness. And therefore, the, in the dialogue between Shariputta and Avalokiteshvara, we are invited to also remember that uh, the form is also emptiness. The form is the absolute. The relative is the absolute. The unity between everything, unity between the ordinary and the sacred, the emptiness and the form. The ultimate non-duality. Yes. Let's say if you let's say if somebody wants to really understand or to experience emptiness, if he or she look for it as a, a something separate from this ordinary things, then he or she would not find emptiness, true emptiness. Let's see if I pay attention right now to the glass of uh, water, uh, if I meditate or if you meditate, you'll find emptiness in it. We could call it emptiness of uh, the cup or emptiness of this and that. So the only place you can find emptiness is actually not outside of ordinary things, but within the ordinary of things. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there are this uh, very peculiar, very kind of uh, strange uh, trends in the Buddhist philosophy. They talk about emptiness of uh, this and that, emptiness of a uh, vast, emptiness of pillar, and you could just keep adding to the list emptiness of a bed, emptiness of the pillow, emptiness of the cell phone. There's a really meaning in those expressions. They are actually reminding us that emptiness is not separate from anything. Mm -hmm. The only place that we can find emptiness is within very ordinary things. It's like imagine that if somebody believes in the divine some kind of mighty being, uh, we are telling that you will not find the divine in the heaven, <laughs> but you'll find the divine in the, this world, you'll find the divine in the garbage can. And we are telling them the place where you find the divine is actually in the garbage can go there and look into your garbage can or whatever, <laughs> then you'll find the divine, but not in heaven. <laughs> it would be like that. <laughs> well, I was uh, um, the first time that first times I read the Heart Sutra and studied it. I was puzzled by the mantra at the end. It's like here's this incredibly densely worded um, presentation of, of an and invitation to meditate on these profound things that you've just been describing. But then at the end there's this there's there's this mantra and I came to realize that actually 
there's a beauty to it because this invitation that the whole sutra offers ends with something that you actually do in our bodies. Right. So I'm, I, I'm interested if you have more that you would add to that. Oh, yeah. Well, the mantra is in some way uh, very synthesized, really disturbed, uh, almost sacred uh, aphorism that captures the, the entire wisdom of the Heart Sutra as well as the entire body of the Paranjana Paramata Sutras. There's that element in the mantras. Uh, when you look at the meaning of the mantra in the Heart Sutra, basically it uh, invites us to go beyond everything, go beyond uh, all concepts, ideas, and go to the, the ineffable. But as you said, uh, without that mantra, perhaps uh, the heart star would be extremely boring. <laughs> I don't think uh, I would recite a heart sutra if it were not for the mantra. <laughs> The mantra can bread life, otherwise just all this negation. You know it's profound, but yeah. not very juicy, <laughs> not very captivating. And uh, but not mantra bread really this beautiful uh, flavor immediately, and in a way that uh, there's a kind of joy when you begin to chant the mantra. It's very uplifting. And as you said, it does something to your body, it also does something to your heart. Uh, and therefore, usually, whenever we recite uh, the Heart Sutra, sometimes we even accumulate the mantra uh, for a while, 108 times or mm -hmm. more than that, mm -hmm. and towards the recitation of the Heart Sutra. Mm -hmm. And also, these days, uh, in my community, we have been working on melodies of this uh, oh. mantra. It's quite a lovely melody and that people can even participate and they can even do harmony and uh, huh? just take you to another dimension when you chant uh, the mantra with us. Mm -hmm. yes. Well, I was wondering, um, because you said earlier that um, you and use the Heart Sutra yourself daily right. in your own practice. Um, and it sounds like when you come together in Sangha together, the chanting is, is another way that your students would, would use the Heart Sutra. Are there other ways that you have, besides reading your book, of course, um, are there other ways that your students use or that you recommend that your students use the Heart Sutra in their practices? Yes, usually people in my community uh, practice heart sutra quite a lot at every major event that we organize, such as a week-long residential retreat. During those uh, retreats, we chant heart sutra with the drumming. Even mm -hmm. there's a, even music comes with that, and then everybody sing it. And then when people ask me, "Oh, I'm going through some," difficulties, what shall I do? I sometimes refer them to the Heart Sutra, tell them just chant it and then maybe mm. you'll find some clarity. 
but not so much the sutra itself, but the meaning of the sutra is what that liberates us, that mm-hmm. sets us free, which mm-hmm. is uh, this amazing liberating truth, uh, which we call the great emptiness. Uh, and basically, whenever I tell somebody do the heart sutra, when I tell myself do the heart sutra, I'm not really telling myself or telling other people just recite the heart sutra, everything is going to be okay. <laughs> what I'm really trying to say is uh, just uh, go beyond your thinking mind, your yeah. ego-centered mind, and just jump yourself into the the sea of ineffable, mm-hmm. the, the the big reality that is bigger than the the little reality that our ego constructed, which is a very contracting and narrowed and kind of everything we really experience in life is part of that little reality, including all the social conventions that we wholeheartedly believe. Uh, and, and therefore, I usually ask people to chant the heart to stop, but when they chant the heart to stop, perhaps many of them have a, a at least a glimpse of that truth, that liberating truth, truth that is bigger than any any version of truth that our human mind, this thinking mind, has uh, constructed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final questions? Actually, it's just about up. I'm good. Well, yeah. One one aspect of that that I appreciated in the book was uh, the description about. Avalokiteshvara as being something within ourselves and Shariputra as being something within ourselves and I, in the same way that you were describing the, the Heart Sutra as reminding us of the ineffable I just wanted to acknowledge that the I found in, in my own meditation that if I take the position of Shariputra and ask within that that no that negation the the form is emptiness becomes a reminder that helps create a path to freedom and a way out of just being in the small mind mm-hmm. and i think i think the text and your your commentary on it makes that very accessible for practitioners uh, yeah absolutely uh first uh, for some people they can take uh, the whole this uh, kind of drama in the heart sutra where buddha was sitting at vulture peak mountain in india and then shari buddha started uh, asking avalokiteshvara all these questions regarding emptiness for, for some people or people can take literally that's good for them and some people take that metaphorically that's good for them whatever uh, however the interpreter which really doesn't matter but uh, sometimes when I chant the heart sutra I even intentionally visualize it's quite an effortless visualization because all you need is just to listen to the sutra that you're chanting I just visualize uh, in my mind a vulture pick mound and there's mm. a Buddha sitting there in silence and then Shari Buddha began to have this very profound dialogue with Avalokiteshvara. I kind of visualize. Sometimes I visualize and then as I start chanting, I feel the whole thing, drama was happening, play happening in my body. is really interesting. First I think, you know, India somewhere there, but then as I chant, it's all kind of happening somewhere in my body. <laughs> There's a vulture prick mount in my body and then the whole dialogue is happening in my mind and then and in the end, uh, 
because I my main philosophy is non-dual. I I describe myself as a, a non-dual Buddhist. Whatever that means. Does that mean there's a, a dualistic Buddhist? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm not indicating that uh, there is a dualistic Buddhist. But anyway, I describe myself as a more non-dual. Buddhist uh, and therefore for me because of my personal philosophy in the end I feel all this image the form that the fantastic play happening in my consciousness uh, I become kind of this wonderful expression of my inner dialogue it's like basically I feel that this part of me is the part of my consciousness the Shari Buddha part of me is the Awadokutach who is answering and uh, of course I'm talking about uh, from point of the Buddha nature uh, like I feel uh, let me clarify I think I feel the Awadokutach is my Buddha nature my Buddha nature's talk and, and I feel Shari Buddha is my only aspiration desire to wake up to really know the big truth the nature of reality so I feel the whole thing was my own internal dialogue. Doesn't it make sense? Yes, and it's that, very clear. That can happen to anybody because everybody has Buddha nature and nothing really special about that. But that's how I interpret. I'm not saying that that's what I see, that's what I experience, the vision, but just energetically I feel that, oh yeah, the Avalokiteshvara is my Buddha nature, the Avalukta Shiva that I visualize it's just form of my Buddha nature and Shari Buddha that I was uh, visualizing who was talking to Avalukta Shiva is just form of my uh, my aspiration to wake up and, and dialogue is basically my own my internal dialogue it's a dialogue between my Buddha nature and, and my longing to wake up well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the book. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for your presence, your time. You come all the way from Sebastopol. And uh, can you tell me one more time your bookstore name? It's Many Rivers Books and Tea. So, Many Rivers uh, of the Dharma. Oh, oh great. And tea is like the mantra for Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. It's true. We come together and speak together about tea. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's delightful. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, our subject is the recently published book, The Fragrance of Emptiness, A Commentary on the Heart Sutra. We just were replaying an interview recorded two weeks ago with the author, Tibetan teacher Anam Tupton, and then we will continue to the discussion after the break with a live interview in the studio with the editor of that book, Laura Duggan. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called La Coro Sutro, which is the Heart Sutra in the invented language of Esperanto. It's music of 20th century American composer Lou Harrison, performed by the UC Berkeley Chorus and the American Gamelan Ensemble with additional soloists. This is the eighth movement, marked Strophe 7. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back to the Mystical Positivist. You are listen- I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, our subject is the recently published book, The Fragrance of Emptiness, a commentary on the Heart Sutra. In the first hour, we replayed an interview recorded two weeks ago with the author, Tibetan teacher Anam Tupton. In this hour, we're going to continue the discussion with a live interview and conversation in the studio with editor of the book, Laura Duggan. It was great uh, to uh, uh, listen again to the to the uh, conversation all four of us had. Um, um, I, had I, I don't often listen to our interviews after we after we do them, um, and that was that was fun for me. But one of the things that um, I wanted to bring up is the whole question of why would you study the Heart Sutra? In other words, why do we study these texts at all? And that's um, uh, something that I think is is interesting. Um, one of the one of the ways to think about it is that study is useful to build what uh, my friend Jim Wilson calls inferential has called inferential consciousness. That is the realization that objects, whether they're mental objects, physical objects, etc., um, have histories and and as well connections to everything else. So study allow helps us appreciate both historical trajectory of whatever kind of object we're talking about and connections to everything else. So that's a sort of general thing about about um, study of religious texts. And, um, and listening again to the conversation with uh, Anub Tubton and the three of us, I'm reminded that that there there were lots of places uh, in that conversation about the Heart Sutra where that connection to everything else and that things have history matter. The history part would obviously come partly in with regard to the historical debates and uh, arguments that uh, Anup Tutin was referring to, and um, and then there are. Uh, I really liked the point he brought up at the end of the conversation about his own practice of visualizing the setting of the Heart Sutra and the enactment of the Heart Sutra within his own uh, consciousness and, you know, configuring Shariputra as aspiring mind um, and intention and um, Avalokiteshvara as awakened mind. Um, and that was... Um, that, that was a really nice um, connection, and it's one of the one of the reasons it seems to me that uh, that study is helpful because it can help engender those those um, capacities in us. Do you have any comments in in response to that? Uh, agree or disagree? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I haven't ever considered it the way you. You and quoting Jim put it as mm-hmm. connections. I guess I have two thoughts about it. One, in both the Tibetan tradition and coincidentally in the Vedic tradition, <laughs> <laughs> there uh, there's a there were there were there were, there were some <laughs> quote marks air quote marks with fingers there. Um, there there is a long history of spiritual practice being based on three steps. Shravana, Manana, and Nididhyasana. And as I said, coincidentally, the Tibetans use the exact same 
words. And shravana translates as listening, but just recently in a course I was in with Anamtutin, he said listening actually is study. And that it's also true in the Vedic tradition. The first step in spiritual practice for both of those traditions is study. Then comes listening, uh, sorry, then comes contemplation or reflection, and then comes meditation. And the point is that you need to sort of loosen up the intellect through study to get it broader, basically, expand it to take in things that you might not actually take in, like no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue. You study to take that in. Then contemplation is you chew it, uh, like they say, a cow chewing its cud. You're, You're... Okay, how does that sit with me? And then in meditation, you let go of the concepts. So it's in a way, it's like a thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Tell me more. I don't know that. Well, in that, that uh, thesis is uh, the listening. You, 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 you take in a kind of a positive assertion. Uh, in reflection, we kind of uh, uh, reflect it. It becomes the antithesis. We uh, uh, study it. And then in meditation, it becomes integrated, and that's the synthesis. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, so it's interesting that that for me, study is not even a question of why it's the heart of my spiritual path is to study. I have a pile of books next to my bed all the time, but there's something in that interview that um also struck me for the first time rehearing it that I think also addresses your question. He said several times when I repeat it myself or I ask people to repeat it, he said. It's not because the repetition itself Mm. is what does it. What he was saying, what I decoded as what he was saying is, this is not magical. Mm -hmm. You don't just repeat it because it's magic, which a lot of people hold certain mantras to be. Right. Not magical. No, it's that you repeat it remembering what you've studied. And in that remembrance of what you studied, that's where the transformation, that's where the letting go happens. So I think that one of the reasons he wrote the commentary, for example, is that we do chant the Heart Sutra all the time, but people don't know what it means. And he didn't want that to simply become like we're just robots and we just chant the stuff and it'll work. Well, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And it it then distinguishes that from what he was describing in terms of widespread East Asian Mahayana practices of chanting the Heart Sutra to have better business or something like that. You know these these mundane purposes. So so I think so I think um, I appreciate your answer that that study is an integral part of being able to use the Heart Sutra in the way that you know it offers itself to be used. Yeah, uh, and this point that uh, we started one of the early questions and it was it was a question that you had suggested which which is this paradox between study the conceptual uh words images symbols uh to provide us a uh tool or a way to uh release from all of that and to abide in the non-conceptual and it, it, i i i love the paradox about this and and like a good paradox, it, it there's not a real good clear resolution to me. I'm I'm interested how you how you uh, wrestle with that. Well, um, I don't wrestle with it because I just love study. 
and huh. and it's my personal experience that I was just sharing this with somebody the other day. Oh, it was with Jim actually. Hmm. I said, you know, I keep buying all these Buddhist books to read. I said, they're not in my budget, but when I read them, um, it brings me into a larger mind. I'm keeping the company of these great minds, and I go to bed with this expansion. I can't imagine not doing it. So to me, study is the gateway to experience. Yeah. It, 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 because I could never think of the things that I'm reading when I read some of these texts. I've been reading Longchenpo, who's a great Nyingma master from whenever, 12th, 13th century. I barely understand what he's saying, but it's like this long poem to Buddha nature, to Dzogchen. And by the time you've read a few verses, you think, oh, yeah, maybe it's true. And you let go and you feel something. Yeah. Yeah, and one one point I want you know uh, along this line that I think is important is that I found in the book really helped me a lot was Anam Tupton's very earthy about the translation of the teaching into uh, one's life that and he's very clear about uh, not getting trapped by you know, intellectual uh, uh, argumentation about this. So when he talks about emptiness, he has a very practical view that it's not that things disappear, that it's not that things go away. It's that things are empty of an intrinsic self-nature, which means that they're not in and of themselves ultimate or real or foundational. They Things arise because of conditions, things exist because of conditions, and they ultimately pass away because of conditions, and everything's changing. And that intuition is important to imbibe and to deepen within ourselves such that we get to the root of our suffering, which, as I saw in the text, and he describes in the text, the suffering is, arises from clinging to things as real and, and holding on to things as though <clears throat> we can uh, control the universe when things inexorably are changing and necessarily will change and emptiness is really the condition of things it's not a place you go it's just it's the way things are and and it's not a being it is just the a way of understanding our nature of reality and our being within that reality yeah you know, and i would just want to add to what you just said which just came in with the red flag it's not just things it's concepts. Yeah. The biggest piece of emptiness that I think um, Anam talks about and that is hard for people to swallow is you're going to let go of concepts, too. Well, I mean, that's that's really important. And and um, one of the one of the things when I first studied the Heart Sutra that that was important uh, for me to come to understand was and 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 it's relevant to the fragrance of emptiness because um the book lays out as we as as was touched on in the in the uh recording with, that uh, we just played um is that there are all these different interpretations and yet and yet the heart sutra one one important aspect of the heart sutra is that it's it's really saying that there's no single thought system or doctrine, whether Buddhist or non-Buddhist, um, that um, uh, encodes 
um, ultimacy or ultimate knowledge or something like that. And, and that that's very important because there is this subtle danger of the, the tendency of the human mind to um, project the Heart Sutra itself as another doctrine. It's very, uh, it's, it's so easy to fall into and not, not even realize you've done it. Um, so that's why the, the study and, the contempl- and then the contemplation particularly would be the antidote to that, to that tendency. And, and particularly, he, uh, in the book we talk a lot about the particular uh, tract of Madhyamaka, the philosophy. Madhyamaka, there's two kinds of Madhyamaka which he talks about. And the one that Anantuptin quotes quite a bit is the Madhyamaka who, presented by Nagarjuna, which says, I have no position to assert. Mm-hmm. And the way this Madhyamaka goes about presenting its quote-unquote philosophy is not by presenting anything, but by negating other things just for that very reason, so that it doesn't turn itself into a thing, a philosophy that you can say, okay, this is, the, this is it. Um, instead, it just negates everything and says that I have nothing to assert. Well, that's the, um, I mean, this this. This whole point about negation is, is of course, interesting. You know, uh, I mentioned this Christ, uh, in the in the inter- um, interview we played. I mentioned this Christ, that, that this is used in the Christian tradition. It's called via negativa in the Latin West, but it's used in many in many. It's, yeah, in the, in the Vedic traditions, it's neti neti. That's right. That's right. So, um, but it's uh, I liked. Um, I was paying attention when when Anubhutan in our interview said that he 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 called it something like an awakening to the truth, such that negation is is a method or a tool right. that help uh, that is is used. But he also said you you need and this makes sense to me. We also need to balance negation with. Um, with another direction, I mean, we might call call that an assertion, I suppose. But but that not one there's not one method only that is going to help us uh, actualize this um, awakening to the truth. Yeah, no, that's true. It's both affirmation and negation, and eventually you do go beyond both of them. At the very ending of his book, he goes back to saying, in the end, there isn't anything to negate. Right. There is no negation. It's a stage on the path. Right. And I think part of his uh, emphasis in the book is simply don't skip that stage. I noticed in the interview he said, you know, you just, if you really want to wake up, you can't, you can't live without negation. Mm-hmm. So right. it's a stage on the path that you have to go through until you transcend both of them and then you embrace everything. Yeah, it, I, it's... I mean, again, you it, you were just saying this a moment ago. You're negating your uh, concepts. You're negating the uh, uh, the clinging to a particular answer, and that that is uh, um, takes you to a, a a place of openness that is free form and uh, accepting. Yeah, I went and during the I think it was during the interview I. I I flashed on uh, a quote that is from Chogyong Trungpa that Anam likes to quote. And he said, Trungpa said, it's like falling out of an airplane without a parachute 
<laughs> but the good news is there's no ground. There's no place to <laughs> land. <laughs> right. I love that quote. I think it puts the whole thing into a very succinct sutra. That's what yeah. we're talking about. There's no place to land. Right. Yeah. And another thing that I, I, I thought was interesting at the end, toward the end of the book, there's a, uh, a discussion on compassion. And that's an important point here because at one level with this negation, it feels uh, like uh, you're denying everything. And you're, you're, you know, it's like, no this, no that, no, no nothing, you know, and... Uh, that's that's why the criticism, I think, of nihilism or you know the a belief in nothingness or a belief in the negation of everything is uh, uh, a common critique if you approach the Heart Sutra at a certain level of interpretation. But but uh, Anupman is very clear about compassion is the natural response that arises when the conceptual is sort of freed up you know when the um, you know the ice flow opens up and there's a uh, flow again that that uh, compassion is is innate within us and that this text actually cultivates an openness or a compassion that is expansive and and uh, and that's very different that's very that's a very positive thing that uh, emerges once you remove the crust that the uh, I think the negation is intended to break up. Yes, and uh, I think he quotes a number of masters who say at the end of the book, he said, um, w- without compassion, your spirituality is rotten. Yeah. It's useless. And I think one of the things I personally see among my peers, and probably in myself, let's face it, <laughs> it uh, is this tendency to use emptiness as a way of skipping over the suffering? You know, mm-hmm. like uh, things aren't going well, and and you say to a friend, or a friend says to you, "Well, you know, it's all an illusion anyway." And that's what I think compassion is trying to undercut. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, this is an interesting um, uh, point because. On one level, I mean, and, and it, you look at it within yourself. If you see suffering, uh, at least let, let's call it the existential suffering or the unnecessary suffering. If you see someone suffering, um, part of compassion is just recognizing that and seeing yourself in that, and uh, and remembering and understanding how uh, you have suffered in the same way. Uh, but it's it's tricky because on the one hand um, you want to help, on the other hand, uh, uh, helping when it's not appropriate is something other than compassion. It's, it, it's kind of an interference or a uh, assertion of the ego in, in a lot of senses, mm-hmm. and and that balance is a very uh, uh, requires a kind of a, a discrimination that I, I think, as you say, that uh, at a certain level of practice one may not have. One may stumble and try to reassure someone with the message that with the good news of emptiness and i don't know that's what people want to hear when they're in uh in a very identified state and i don't know that it's true i i was listening to i'm listening to an audiobook by miranda mcpherson a very interesting non-dual teacher she lives in marin i just ran across her book i don't know much about her but she led this contemplation which i thought was really interesting to bring yourself to that place uh, to 
imagine or hopefully you do this meditation when you have a difficult situation in your mind and you're experiencing some unnecessary suffering and then to get in touch with the witness at the same time that you also experience the suffering that you're feeling in other words that you could hold them both and what I felt her contemplation was was holding the relative and the absolute simultaneously and that that's what we're trying to do with this whole understanding of emptiness and mm. compassion is yes at the ultimate level there is no suffering there's no form there's no feeling etc that's the absolute and we never negate the relative and in the relative moment if you're suffering you're suffering yeah it doesn't matter if you've created it yourself or not well that that um capacity to to hold both things together is actually of course <clears throat> excuse me reminds uh reminds me of of uh, Stuart's and my um actual uh, basic pr- basic practice because it's all about having the witness present for what's what's arising whether whether it feels good or whether it feels bad you know all that's all that stuff and that that it adds the necessary additional dimension that allows us not to have to be owned by whatever the experience is, whether whether incredibly positive, incredibly negative, or so-so. And at the same time, to have compassion. That's right. That that once you can actually be in a witness stance to any suffering, you don't have to negate what's in front of you. You have compassion for it. That's why I think they're so linked. Mm. Step into the emptiness of everything, and then it allows. Well, uh, what I'm hearing, what you just said, is, is sort of like, sort of imaginatively taking the role of Kuan Yin um, to whatever to whatever is present. Um, I mean, and I'm also reminded of, uh, you know, on the subject of compassion, it seems to me that the, the what Anubhutin said at the very end of our recorded conversation there about how he visualizes, you know, uh, the aspiring parts of, of himself as Shariputra and Avalokiteshvara as the awakened mind, that's actually, that's actually a compassion, a compassionate thing to do. Um, because it helps support this um, this this point that you're making now about holding compassion for yourself as much as for the others that you see around you. Yeah, I think what and it it goes back to what you're saying about paradox. It's a description of how you hold the paradox. They're yeah. both true. I am fully enlightened, and mm-hmm. I'm fully I'm fully Avalokiteshvara, and I'm fully uh, deluded. I'm fully Shariputra. And that I hold them both. I never negate one in favor of the other. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a great statement of the act of compassion as, as well. Compassion isn't about fixing things. A compassion is about being present to things. And whether it's in ourselves or if we're bearing witness to another, without trying to fix them, the act or the presence of that enlightened aspect in the face of the conditioned or the suffering allows the suffering to move the way it will move and not get fixed or frozen in place and i think that that's how we can be of service in a way that doesn't require that we get in there and uh, be psychologists and uh, you know get the screwdrivers out in people's brains but simply to hear someone mm-hmm. to be listen to someone and not to push mm-hmm. it away mm-hmm. 
I think when we try to fix things, it's a way of pushing away uh, suffering as opposed to just being present to it. And probably because of our own discomfort. Yeah. I want to fix it because I'm not comfortable around the suffering. And so let me help my friend out of her thing so I don't have to suffer on her behalf. Yeah, it's just like if someone's crying, do you do uh, can you hold that and be present to that and see the beauty in that or do you have to like do something, grab them and you know, say, Oh it's all right, it's all right, you don't have to cry. Yeah. I think also when you say that it brings me back again to non duality. I'm I'm kinda of big on it these days. I feel like the the whole point of emptiness and non duality is that when one holds that as a view, there isn't anything to reject. You don't reject the suffering in favor of the joy. I mean, sure, we might have preferences, well, but you don't reject it. Well, you know, that this is a, a great point, and it, and it uh, came up a little bit in the, the, the conversation with Anam Tupton, that, and, and, and it's reflected in the book, this, this idea that um, uh, non-duality, you know, to, to assert non-duality, it's not asserting emptiness. You know, and I think this is one of the the problems that I see in some of the, uh, the modern forms of Advaita Vedanta is is this idea that oh it's all consciousness or it's all you know over there. It's it, there's a different realness that was being uh, offered in the book, which is that emptiness is is form, form is emptiness. They they coexist together. And and what we partake of is a blend of the two, and being sensitive to that dance and that blending is the awakened state. But it's awakening in form. It's it's not it's not far away. It's not transcendent. It's not it doesn't negate anything. But it's participating fully uh, with full presence in the moment. And there's nothing you know. And that there's nothing to negate in that sense, as you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think one of the things I took away from that interview was his repetition of emptiness is here in the glass of water, in the telephone, in the microphone. I mean, it's a relentless pointing back to the fact that it's not somewhere else. It is in the form. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. I think that's a profound meditation. Yeah, uh, it uh, it's a, you know, there's so many different lines of approach. I mean, one of the areas that I've been interested in lately is even in, in philosophy or logic, you know, how do you, how do you talk about this realm of things? And, um, in a way, the, uh, the best models I'm seeing or I'm exploring right now are the ones that almost describe the state as uh, going between true and false or yes and no infinitely fast it's like it's it's a it's a this that is in a sense the the seed of time it's the uh the change the changing it's a, the yes and no that's constantly existing so there's no ground for anything to get stuck because it's almost like a um, you know anything that falls upon it just sort of uh is uh disintegrated that's an interesting thing i would have i would my experience right now, especially when I'm working with a nom, is a slightly different way of saying it, which is that the this is good, this is bad doesn't even arise. Mm-hmm. It absolutely doesn't arise. There's no arising of it that has to keep shuffling back and forth. Is oh, 
this is what the universe is presenting. Oh, this is what the universe is presenting. And that absolute openness to whatever's happening is a manifestation of whatever you want to call it, the divine of emptiness, your Buddha nature. When you're anchored in everything is manifesting because that's what it's supposed to be doing, we don't even have to keep flipping. Mm -hmm. There's never a no and there's never a yes. There's just, oh, this is what's next. And that's kind of, I think, uh, part of my goal in my spiritual path right now. Yeah. How do you get to that? Yeah, I, I, that reminds me of something my teacher, uh, Robert Ennis, had told me. And that, you know, he had said, as a practice, both as a practice, I mean, he kind of described this as the way things are, that when you uh, are sincerely seeking awakening, that the universe necessarily has to respond by creating circumstances that become uh, food for that process. And I took that to heart in a way, uh, and it was like a kind of an extended meditation, but in that taking to heart, it, it's like my, it cultivates a sense that whatever shows up is to be said yes to, because whatever shows up is the, is the universe uh, creating the conversation that is and providing the food that I can consume by being present to it, and it's a it's, it's that long term path or that long term contemplation I find is transformative because it changes your relationship to everything that happens. Completely, completely, and it's non it's non sectarian. Uh, I'm thinking of Byron Katie's teachings, for example, which is. You can't argue with reality because you'll lose every time. <laughs> and, you know, loving what is is her teaching. There, there are numbers of paths that, and Shaivism says the same thing in Kashmir Shaivism. The, the sutra is nothing exists that is not Shiva. So everything that arises is the divine, is the path. You can't possibly reject it. And, but no one's saying that's an easy practice. It's not. Got it. Well, um, we're drawing a little, somewhat towards the end of our conversation here, and I wanted to um, just, maybe it's just personal curiosity, but uh, talking about form and emptiness, there's a form by which a book like this um, ends up being this physical object and this set of ideas that we can talk about in the way that we've just been doing. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the form now. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. My my understanding is that Anubhutan gave talks about um, about the Heart Sutra, right? And I, and those were the, uh, the 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 substrate from which the book was created. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And then, um, do I recall also correctly that you said that oh this would be a great book or something like that or was it you who said who said uh, that? I or? think we both agreed that we could start with that. Okay. But uh, that turned out to be um, not what happened <laughs> <laughs> because um, they were all oral teachings that he gave on the Heart Sutra over a period of two or three long days of teaching. And mm. we transcribed, I transcribed all those talks, mm -hmm. um, did some editing on grammar, you know, language. Mm -hmm. And then when we began to go through it, um, it wasn't okay. 
because Sanam was very aware that what you say casually when you're teaching uh, could be very easily misunderstood in writing. Yeah. And so I would say uh, a lot of the oral stuff mm-hmm. went away and began yeah. being replaced with real thoughtful research from his own sitting there looking up quotes, um, contextual stuff, because his teaching is spontaneous and off I don't want to say off the cuff necessarily, but, you know, just spontaneous. When he began to say, well, we're going to really write about the Heart Sutra, we could use this quote and this quote and this quote. So the transformation was immense. So did Mm -hmm. you start with the uh, transcriptions and then essentially added, deleted, and augmented uh, with... research material yeah we started with the transcriptions and then i tried to put them in some kind of a uh, a little bit more of an order because sometimes he'd bring up a topic and then bring it up again later because again there was a month between each time he was teaching so there was not necessarily recollection of what he'd already said in the transcriptions. so yeah. we did reordering and cutting but then then we went through and all of this was done orally i would read him word by word, and then he would riff on some other point that he thought would be very good for that. Um, so it was... I've never worked on a book like that. Did you Did you uh, record it? I mean, no, we, I typed. So, I, I mean, but what I'm saying is, like, when he would riff on something, you were... You, I, I can actually happen to be a very fast typist. Okay, so you could catch it. As, so, but, after a while, I developed RSI, so I, I started... <laughs> but we were at the end of the book. I had arranged to start recording it because it was... But I was typing as he would talk. Then I would go back. I would edit it, cut and paste, rearrange. I think I have something like a hundred versions on my computer of the number of times we went through the book and fixed things. And how long did it take? Well, um, actually, the talks were given in October, November 2016. There were eight talks, and I did a round of edits by January 2017. By June, we had some draft that I thought was good, but when it came out and I actually printed it, um, Anam thought well, we could do better, and then it took an entire another year. So you printed so. it like a, you did a uh, uh, like a Amazon type. Pr- uh, well, uh, yeah, I use I use Ingram Spark for all, all of my printing, so yeah. we did a uh, we did one print, and um, so it took a year after the first one. So basically, a year of working. Um, every week for an entire day going through the book. And we went through the book cover um, cover to cover four times, wow. basically. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it, and then you, you mentioned uh, uh, that there were several times where you were almost done or you thought it was done, and then Anam Tupin was like, well, no, we need to fix that. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's a couple of places, I think, where uh, he would have conversations with people like the Jodong uh, 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 representatives and, and change sections in the book after yeah. you had published a bunch yes. of copies. Well, and what I what I got from that, there was a lot of that. And what I got from it, besides feeling like I was um, Millerapa building tower after tower only to tear them down, what I got was um, Anama's very conscientious um, about the use of words and language and wanting it to be truthful and honest and accurate. And 
when you're speaking, which since he did all of this speaking, but then you read it, you might notice there's an inaccuracy. Or an even implication, I Or suppose. an implication. But, yeah. I mean, one of them that's very small that I thought was kind of a good example was in one of the printed versions it said, uh, right up front it said, oh, and I know a number of monks in my hometown who would chant the Long Sutra every day. And then when we went through and read it, he said, well, actually, it was just one particular monk that I was thinking of. <laughs> So we changed it because Mm -hmm. in his mind that was not an accurate statement. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. We're going to change the book for that. Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, that that is interesting. Uh, The the other thing I think that is uh, fascinating to me is that just knowing you, uh, I can see how this project has... uh, uh, had a profound impact on your own practice well it's had a profound effect first of all on my western impatience like we're going to get it done you know we're at uh what was it june 2017 we're done with this and the the drive that one has to complete things Mm -hmm. now and get them done that uh has been worn Worn down. Yeah, it sounds like he. Uh, this the book was an occasion for him to play with that with you. Oh well, we're not. Gonna, no, we're going to do another reprint. <laughs> and, and I don't. I no longer because I'm not anymore in the group path where someone does something to you intentionally. I think it's what you just said. The universe provided yeah. circumstances for me to look at that level of patience and impatience. Mm-hmm. And can't we just be done with it? And I had to let go of that. And then I had. I do feel that sitting with him week after week and talking, literally we would just sometimes talk about emptiness, made it uh, something that is a big part of my practice. Yeah, now. I mean, it's like it was yeah. it was a, a teaching context that you, you created the circumstances by this project to have access uh, on a very regular basis. And, yeah. that, and that's a... And, you know, our own teacher would say, well, that's very smart. Uh, <laughs> but uh, also, as I said, I, I just, yeah. you know, I can feel the uh, um, uh, the the shift, and it's a really lovely to see. Well, thank you. It was it was profound. I felt very grateful that um, he had the time and interest to want to talk about Heart Sutra. I would say that it had been his foundational practice. When mm-hmm. he says that he's not saying that lightly, mm-hmm. that it has been his practice for his whole life to chant it, and uh, it's a very important part of his. How How is that? Um, has the Heart Sutra taken on a, a more important position in your own practice too yeah i like to chant it every morning now i I do love to read it and um it it's it's just a nourishing it's just nourishing it's just i just add it to my morning practice it doesn't take more than two or three minutes and it's good got it yeah got it well we're drawing now to the very end of our uh, conversation i don't know if you have any uh, projects that you want to let people know about um, coming up or websites for your work websites for uh, Dramata right. Foundation well we have a retreat January the well, first weekend in January that I'm the coordinator of there you go uh, New Year's retreat is uh, uh, I coordinate all of the local retreats. Anam does a New Year's retreat. That's a weekend retreat. Then we do a summer residential retreat, and it's become an annual event. Mm. And the New Year's retreat is always very beautiful because um, it's a time where he offers us the chance to not just reflect but let go 
which is a very heart mm. sutra kind of thing. <laughs> let go of anything you want to let go of mm. and enter the new year with uh, a different um, commitment yeah. to practice and to dharma. Uh, so I've always found those those retreats very compelling. And so this will be the first weekend, and it's coming up at, at our temple, Diana Hall in Richmond, Point Richmond, California. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, thank Laura. You. This has been thank a you. lot of fun. Yeah, I been. mean, the, the whole process um, has been, um, uh, you know, a pleasure to engage in. Certainly the conversation that we, you know, replayed earlier was was a lot of fun. I enjoyed getting to spend, because uh, I was there for, for much of the day beforehand, and um, that was all uh, enjoyable. Having this conversation and the other smaller conversations we've had around uh, making all this happen has been uh, something I've deeply appreciated. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I also want to just say that I was very moved by our interview with him because your questions really brought out such profound teachings from that experience that um, it's rare to be able to be a witness to the conversations you had with him. And I I really valued that very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, our subject has been the recently published book, The Fragrance of Emptiness, a commentary on the Heart Sutra. In the first hour, we replayed an interview recorded two weeks ago with the author, Tibetan teacher Anam Tupton, and then we continued the discussion with a live interview in the studio with the editor of the book, Laura Duggan. Next week's Mystical Positivist show will feature a previously recorded telephone conversation with spiritual teacher J.J. Gold. That was just uh, recorded a couple of weeks ago. He's the author of Just in Time, Autobiographical Stories from an American Spiritual Master, Another Heart in His Hand, A Spiritual Anomaly, and Highway of Diamonds. In his younger years, J.J. Gold studied at a 500-year-old experimental Naqshbandi Sufi school in northeastern Afghanistan. He believed that the methods he learned in this school needed to be modified for people in affluent Western cultures. He took on this challenge, developing tools, dynamics, and explorations of consciousness to help lead Westerners toward, quote, intimacy with the ultimate reality in order to become true servants, unquote. J.J. Gold has been assisting people in their search for inner meaning for 35 years. He currently lives in the Sierra foothills of Northern California, where he works with several dozen seekers of truth. Over the years, he has deliberately resisted the trend to become a traveling guru with thousands of followers around the world in favor of preserving an element that he considers precious, that of maintaining opportunities for developing an actual teacher-student relationship. He's available to anyone who seeks his guidance. Tune in for that show on Saturday, December 22nd from 4 to 6 p.m. Coming up on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, follow your dread to the mystical heart with the Tayo Meditation Center staff. That's Wednesday at 7.30, December 19th at Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess, glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove that cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. 
So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. at Mini Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about the realistic path to the mystical heart. This coming week's Thursday at Mini Rivers event in Sebastopol is Game Night Zodiacs. That's Thursday, December 20th, 7.30 p.m. Join us at Mini Rivers Rivers for this very special game night featuring Nice Games' latest strategy game, Zodiacs. Zodiacs is an easy-to-learn game for two to three players with very deep strategy packed into a brisk playtime. Games are printed on organic fair trade pouches. That's the game um, uh, game board that the uh, pieces come within the pouch. So they, nice games have, have deep enough strategy to satisfy the serious gamer, but are simple enough to be enjoyed by casual gamers as well. Their goal is to squeeze as much strategy and fun as they can into portable games that are easy to learn and don't require a huge time commitment to enjoy. Uh, their games can be learned in just a few minutes and enjoyed on the first play. We'll be having the originator of this p- particular set of games uh, helping lead play um, there on Thursday, December 20th. So join us at Many Rivers for that. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with a piece from the CD called La Coro Sutro, the Heart Sutra in Esperanto. Music of 20th century American composer Lou Harrison, performed by the UC Berkeley Chorus and the American Gamelan Ensemble with additional soloists. This is the sixth movement, marked Strophe 5. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. 